If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We've been looking at some of the liturgical elements of our service. And uh, one of, we looked at the lighting of the candles and the reading of Isaiah 11. We uh, reflected uh, on the key mitzion and the word of God going forth from Jerusalem and from Judea and Isaiah 2. I want to take a moment to look at the Shema, which is such a critical part of Jewish history, Jewish worship, and certainly of the biblical revelation. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, because it's interesting that we have the Shema in two places here. Verse 3, it says, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. In verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Now, in Jewish worship, in the Siddur, actually the Shema is much longer than this. There are really three paragraphs to the Shema. This is the first, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and where do we read to? Through verse 9. But if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11, you'll see another portion of the Shema that is included in the Jewish worship. And much that goes on in the synagogue is a reflection of what the Talmud tells us took place in the temple when the worship of God occurred there when the temple was built. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, this part is also included where it says, So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. Look at verse 10, 18, excuse me. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. The third paragraph, turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. And the third section that is read in the synagogue with regard to the Shema is chapter 15 of the book of Numbers, verse 37. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites, say to them, throughout the generations to come, you're to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them. And not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember and obey all my commands, and you will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. 
I am your God of truth. The next blessing that follows in this in the Siddur it begins with those lines. Now the reason I mention them is because there are interesting traditions that are attached to the reciting of the Shema. First of all, oftentimes you see that we stand. But interestingly enough, the law does not command and the rabbis do not teach that you must stand when reciting the Shema. Although it seems so so commonplace that we think that the Shema must be said standing up. But the reason why the reciting of the Shema was begun by standing is because... The last letter of the first word, Shema, is the letter Ayin. And the last letter of the word Echad is the letter Dalit. Together they spell the word Ad. And the word Ad means witness. And so in Israel, when one was to bear witness, they were to stand up in the court of the Sanhedrin. And so since the Shema is a bearing of witness to who God is... And what he is and what he has done and what our responsibility is, the tradition emerged that those reciting it began to stand up because they were giving witness and testimony that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. I find that to be kind of neat. And later in centuries that went by in the ninth century, the Karaites who questioned the authority of God's word, or at least the divine revelation, they began to stand up in the reciting of the, of the Shema because for them, the Shema was the only piece of scripture that was divinely inspired of God. Well, when that happened, some people that were arguing and uh, combating the ideas of the Karaites, they began to say the Shema while sitting down because they did not want to be connected to the Karaites who were saying only the Shema is inspired when those individuals believed all of God's word was inspired. But in Orthodox tradition, interestingly enough, Orthodox Jews do not stand when reciting the Shema. Why? Because it comes out of the Torah. And what are you supposed to do with the Torah? Study it. And the posture of studying is sitting. So therefore, in Orthodox synagogues, you will not see all Orthodox Jews necessarily stand up, but rather sit because as they recite the Shema, they are scrutinizing it and studying it. Just interesting things, isn't it? When oftentimes you go into a synagogue or Messianic congregations, you see individuals cover their eyes or close their eyes. And you wonder, why do they do that? I bet you 95% of them do not know why. They just do it because they always see it. But the reason why one is supposed to do that is because, according to the rabbis, when the Shema is recited, we are not to be distracted by anything else as we bear witness and testimony and reflect on the truth that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So the covering of the eyes is meant to keep out any distraction as we reflect upon who God is. And one other interesting caveat is that in the Siddurs, I'm not sure in the Torah scroll, I meant to take a look at it this morning just before I came because it came to my mind, but in most documents that are used in worship, you will find that in the Shema, when the Shema is written, the ayin in Shema, the third letter of the first word here, is usually written larger than the rest of the type. And the letter Dalid that ends the word Echad is also bigger and in larger type. 
The reason for that is so we don't make a mistake of reciting the wrong words. Because the word Shema, written with an ayin, is different than the word Shema, though pronounced the same way, written with an aleph. If you write the word Shema with an aleph instead of an ayin, the word it means perhaps. And if you write the word Echad with a resh instead of a dalid, and these letters can sometimes be confused, they look very similar, you have the word acher, which is the word another. And if you were to read the Shema that way, you would be saying, perhaps, O Israel, the Lord our God is another God. So in all of liturgical documents that have the Shema, the ayin and the dalid are bigger so that we're not saying Shema with an aleph but rather, or a hey, but rather we're saying Shema with an ayin, not perhaps, but here. And when we say the word echad, we're not saying acher, but echad, which is the word one and not the word another. So this is such a critical portion of God's word that the rabbis have taken great pains to make sure that when we recite it, we know what we're doing, we know why we're doing it, and we understand its meaning and significance as we reflect upon it. Now, you'll notice the third paragraph of the Shema has to do with the tzitzes or the tassels. When Jews would wear the talus in worship, traditionally, Perhaps some don't realize this, but in Orthodox traditions, when you recite the Shema, you're supposed to gather the tzitzit or the fringes from the four corners of the talus and hold them in your left hand. And when you come to the third paragraph in Numbers chapter 15, where the word fringes or tassels are mentioned three times, each time it's mentioned, you're supposed to kiss them. And then the last time, which is the last uh, phrase of the Shema section leading into the next blessing, which says, The Lord our God is truth. It is kissed a fourth time to remind us that these tassels are to remind us of the commandments which are good and which are lovely and which we desire to obey. And so we kiss them in a sense of honor, respect, and expression of cherishing God's law, which is life itself to us. These are kind of interesting traditions. You see them happening and you wonder, why, do they, why is it like that? Well, these are the reasons for it. We need to think about them. But now let me draw your attention to this passage. This is such a beautiful passage. And indeed, the book of Deuteronomy is perhaps one of the most beautifully written books in all of God's word. It is just such a wonderful expression of concern that Moses writes. And it is crafted in such a beautiful manner. It's really Moses' three last speeches to the people of Israel. Putting it in context, this is 40 years after the wilderness wandering in uh, the desert region around the promised land. The generation that came out of Egypt was now judged, and they're not entering into the land. It is the second generation that has emerged that will enter the land under Joshua and Caleb's leadership. Moses himself is not going to enter in. They're just outside the promised land. They're in what is today Jordan. 
Moses, in fact, is going to go up Mount Nebo. If you've ever visited Israel, had a chance to go to the Jordan, you can go up Mount Nebo today. And at the top of Mount Nebo, you can look out along the uh, Dead Sea. You can see Jericho, the largest oasis in the world. You can look up the Jordan River and up toward Galilee can't see all the land of Israel, but God gave Moses divine vision so that when he was up there, it says he saw all the land of Israel before him. He must have been somewhat frustrated and disturbed and maybe, you know, just angry with himself because he came so far but was not able to enter in. But if you go up that mountain, you'll also see this snake-entwined staff to remind us how Moses in the wilderness, when the Israelites had disobeyed God and those, those poisonous snakes came and brought havoc among Israel, killed some, that Moses was told to take a staff, uh, to take a snake and lift it up on his staff in the wilderness. And everyone that looked up to that snake was healed. Because they were looking up, not really to the snake, but to God himself. And they had faith in him to bring healing uh, to their bodies. You go up to Mount Nebo today, there's a church that's up there in honor of Moses. And this uh, sculpture of a staff and a snake that's intertwined. And you're reminded of, this is where Moses was. Or somewhere in that vicinity, anyway. But Moses is there, but he can't enter in. And he's really concerned for his people. That's what comes through the book of Deuteronomy. His love for God's people. Think about this. Two million people that only gave them sorus for 40 years. Two million people that only complained over and over and over again. And yet the love of Moses for his people did not wane. And here he was on the banks of the Jordan looking out and now he wants to tell the people what they need to hear so that they would not only enter the land but enjoy the land and not ever be cast off from the land. There's really three parts, first four chapters or so. Moses rehearses the history of the Jewish people. He wants them to remember where God has brought them from and where they now have been brought to. Remember, you came out of the land of Egypt. How did you get there? Because of your waywardness and how God brought judgment on your enemies to deliver you. And God's love is prominent. And so he tells them, remember where you have come from. And then the larger section, some 20-something chapters, is devoted to Moses restating the law of God to his people. That's why in Greek it is called, in the Septuagint, it's called Deuteronomy. Deuteros is the Greek word for second, and namas is the Greek word for law. Deuteronomy is the second law, which is the restatement of the law. There's elaborations There's greater detail on some of these laws, but it's in essence a restatement of what God has already told them that's recorded in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and somewhat in the book of Numbers. So he spends a great deal of time here reminding them of God's law. And then when he comes to the end, he then gives him the statement of his upcoming death, and he then pronounces blessing on the people. And he tells them what will be in the land if you are faithful to him. 
Now, with that in mind, just very briefly, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses writes in verse 4, and he says to the people, Hear, O Israel. That's an imperative, by the way. Shema, listen up. This is very important that I am about to tell you. Everything he says here is very important, but this statement about the character and nature of God is critical to your living well in the land and enjoying the blessings of God. And so he says, listen to this and pay careful attention. He says to Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I just want you to notice a couple of things right off the bat. Notice that God is made reference to three times. And if you look in your English translation, you'll see the word Lord is in all capital letters. Why? Because the word Lord is the sacred name of God. It is the Lord of all about whom he is speaking, the God of creation, the one who has the unpronounceable name of God. He is one. He is our God. He is the Lord of the universe, and he alone is God. He wants to get that across because Israel has a propensity to fall prey to idolatry. And later in this very same chapter, he's going to bring that to their attention. He's going to tell them of certain perils that they will face when they're in the land that they need to avoid if they are to enjoy the land and enjoy God. It starts, first of all, by recognizing who God is. And three times is reference made to him. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The rabbis have raised questions over this time and time again. Why doesn't Moses just say, Here, O Israel, the Lord is God? Why doesn't the text simply say the Lord is one? Why does he say the Lord, our God, the Lord is one? Pinchas Lapid, a very scholarly rabbinic uh, man, a, a rabbinic scholar, has reflected very deeply on what he refers to as these triadic phrases attached to God. Why is he called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so frequently? Why not just the God of Abraham? Why not just the God of Jacob? Why not just the God of Isaac? Indeed, there are references to it, but more often than not, God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is it that the angels surrounding the throne of God, as we say every uh, time we come to worship, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Isn't one holy enough? What about four or five or six or seven? Why three? Why does he have three names attached to him? Why was it? These are all Pinnacles ideas. They're not my ideas coming from my perception as to what Yeshua teaches about the character of God or the nature of God or the person of God. This is coming from Pinchas Lapid. Anyone just needs to be objective and fair with what God's revelation brings to us. And these questions are going to come to our minds. Why is it that there are three angelic visitors that come to Abraham? Why is it that God, Abraham, when he addresses these three angelic visitors, he speaks to only one of them? And why does he refer to him as God, the sacred name of God? And in fact, when he argues, or maybe argue is not the right word, beseeches this one, he says, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you destroy it? I thought God was destroying it. No, it's this one that he's talking to. And then he says, this 
incredible line. I was reflecting on it as I was preparing for Edie's mother's funeral. And I couldn't help but think that when Abraham speaks to the the angel of the Lord, and the second time he speaks and he says, please let me speak just this once, for after all, you know that I am but dust. Well, that may just go right over our minds, but if you think about it carefully, it is God who created us out of the dust of the earth. Why does he say to this angel, but you know we are but dust. Angels aren't made out of dust. It is only human beings that are made out of dust. Not even animals are made out of dust or trees. They're just told to appear. But with humanity, we are made out of the dust of the earth by the hand of God. And here, Abraham speaking to this one says, you know that I am but dust. And I am in need of your mercy that you would permit me to speak this one final Word. Well, it's not Abraham's final word, but it is the permission of this angel, this angel of the Lord. In my view, I understand to some degree why there is this complexity. Why the three angels? Why the three references to God in this most holy spoken statement of Moses, as all the rabbis and Jewish or religious people acknowledge? Why is it holy, 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 the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because Moses is introducing us to the nature and character of God himself. He's telling us our God is unique. He is not just a monism, as philosophers would speak. He's not a single entity. He's much too complex for that. That's easy to think about. We can think of one. But we can't think of what is going on here in terms of the complexity of a monotheistic God. Not just a unique one entity, but something much more complex and something past figuring out. One seems easy to figure out. And I haven't passed many math classes. But the oneness of God is past finding out. And that's why our God is unique. And the word echad, is also critical in this passage, as most of us know. It isn't the word yahid, which, by the way, is the Hebrew equivalent to what is oftentimes translated in the Greek, Brit Hadashah, as only begotten. The reason we say only begotten is because a first century Greek scholar by the name of Origen, though he is perhaps the greatest Greek scholar of all time, got that one wrong only to say that we're all human beings and we all are weak and none of us sees clearly. And thus on the basis of his understanding of that word, we always know for God that he is the beloved son in John 1, often it's referred to. But the word that is used in the Greek is really the parallel Greek word from the Hebrew word yahid, which means one of a kind, only or unique. So when the scripture says he's the only begotten, see the begotten thing confuses it all. We should leave it out and just say he's the only son of God, or to put it another way, the unique son of God. The word comes up with Abraham, when God tells Abraham, and on Rosh Hashanah we're going to talk about this somewhat, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And when God tells Abraham to take his son, see the Genesis 20 or 22, I always get them confused. 
But he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, your Yahid son, Isaac. Well, Isaac was not Abraham's only son, was he? He had Ishmael. So it wasn't his only son in the sense that he did not have any others. But he was his only son in the sense that he was his unique son. How was Isaac Abraham's unique son? Well, he was born to Abraham and Sarah when they were past able to have children. He was miraculously conceived by the mercy and grace and will of God. And not only was he unique in that sense, he was unique because he was the son of promise. He was the one to whom God's promise to Abraham would descend, not Ishmael. And so he's the Yahid son. He's the unique son. He's the only son in this regard. But that's not the word that's found in the Shema. Though God is certainly unique. The word here is Echad. And it's a funny word. Because it's always used for things that entail more than one thing. So that the evening and the morning was Yom Echad, one day. Two things make one thing. I don't know. Just evening and morning is one thing. Though they're two things to us. Or we read in Genesis chapter 2 that the man and woman should, should come together and cleave to one another and they become one flesh. Well, that's weird. I mean, if you call Mary Lou on the phone, you won't talk to me. You'll talk to Mary Lou. Though we were one flesh and her voice is a little higher than mine. And yet somehow the two become one. That's why Paul speaks of it as a mystical union. He's saying marriage is like God. There's a mystical union between the man and the woman, just as there's a mystical union between the members of the Godhead. And I think that's what Moses is trying to say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Godhead, the Lord is one. Because he is a echad of some kind. Well, we know of what kind, but we don't know how. We know the scripture reveals God as Father, as Avinu, our Father, as Abba, Daddy. We know that He is revealed as Messiah of Israel. Yeshua Himself says, Before Abraham was, I am. Who says such things? And we know the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, is God. Somehow He is God as well. And thus, he knows the full mind and heart of God himself. No one knows the full mind and heart of God except God himself. You and I only know certain things. We only apprehend a little bit. And it is minuscule with regard to the knowledge of God. And it comes from the revelation of his word. And it's seared into our hearts by the work of the spirit of God. And our minds are enabled to perceive it to some degree. But it's all the work of God within us from beginning to end. So this word echad doesn't mean that he's a singularity. It means that he alone is the true God. And he's more complex than I can ever imagine. But you are not to have any other gods before him. And so the very next thing Moses tells us then We are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's interesting in Mark's account where 
a teacher of the law, a legal scholar of the Mosaic law, comes to Yeshua and says, what is the greatest commandment? Now, if it was me or you, we would have picked one of the ten, don't you think? When he says, what's the greatest commandment? We would have looked to, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. Isn't it interesting? Messiah goes to Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. What's the command? That's the question. What's the greatest commandment? The command is hear it. And Messiah is told the greatest commandment, or tells us, is to hear this. It means to listen to this, embrace this, and acknowledge it as true. The consequences of which should be that in our love for this one who alone is God, we should have love for one another before we are all created in his image. And thus love for God is seen in our love for others. I remember in one of my Bible classes, someone had asked that very question. How do we know when we're loving God with all of our heart? And he said, when you're loving others like yourself. That's when you will know if you are loving God with all of your heart. We think it's because we read the Bible every day. We think it's because we pray regularly. We think it's because we serve him with all of our might. We think it's because we give of all of our substance. We think it's because we're at service whenever there's one. We think it's all of these duty things. And the scripture tells us very clearly it has to do with how you relate to others and how you set others in relation to yourself. Do you love them like yourself? Paul tells us in Philippians that we are to consider others better than ourselves. We are told that we are to be like Messiah himself who relinquished himself of all of his divine prerogatives and came into the world to suffer and die. When we are like that to one another, then we are truly loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might, all of our strength. Deuteronomy 6.4 is not about obeying the commandments so as to obey them. It's about obeying the commandments because you love God. That's what Deuteronomy 6.4 is about. And by the way, the only way we can love God that way is when he's gracious to us and empowers us to do it. Take a look at Deuteronomy 6.4. He says in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land. They didn't go there themselves. I know I'm sounding like President Obama. You didn't build that yourself. All right, right, a little politics, a little fun, that's all. Jack is asleep, so I'm not worried. Not work. Uh oh. But Israel did not. Israel Charlie woke up. Israel did not enter the promised land by themselves. Someone else got them there, and it was the living God who brought them there. Take a look at verse ten. When the Lord your God brings you into the land. The one that, look, he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you. You didn't earn the promised land. You didn't do what was necessary so that God would bring you there and give it to you. I'm giving it to you as a promise. And your response to my command is enabled by my grace. Just as your entering of the land is the result of my grace. Look what he says. To make this really clear, he says, you're going to a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. I don't know how much clearer we can get. You know, it's not what you have done. I'm giving it to you. Look what he says. He goes on to say, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. 
that when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord. He's the one who has enabled whatever it is we have and possess. So here are the perils. I'm sorry, I'm going later, but I hope you're okay. (laughs) Here are the perils. One is amnesia. Do not forget the Lord. How easy and regularly we do, however. We don't realize He's watching. We don't realize He's expecting. We don't realize that He is being manifested in some way, in or through us, or degraded in another way. Remember the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. The Lord is one. Remember the Lord. Take a look at this other thing. Not only does he talk about amnesia, he talks about spiritual amnesia, we could say. He talks about spiritual adultery. Do not follow other gods. The gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. His anger will burn. Don't have anything else replacing God. He must be first, foremost, the object of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Messiah says the same thing. Anyone who loves father, mother, brother, or sister more than me is not worthy of me. How does a human being say that? Unless he is deserving of all of our love, heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's the danger of spiritual amnesia that will lead to our forgetting God. There's the danger of spiritual adultery. Take a look at this, what he goes on to say. He then tells us, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. And thus the way to obey the commands is by loving God, allowing his grace to manifest himself, itself, in and through us, to love people who are around us. Now, in closing, let me draw your attention to Mark. If you look in the brief how to shine, take a look at Mark chapter 12. When Messiah is asked this question, he says, the most important one, what's the great commandment? is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this teacher of the law says, well said, teacher. He's talking to the creator of the universe. Well said. Did pretty good. You are right in saying that God is one. If that was me, I'd say, I know I'm right. I wrote it. You know, I know, you know. But he says, you are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, get this, is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. What is he saying? It's more important than the law. That's where the burnt offerings and sacrifices are. To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all of the sacrifices. What this lawyer knew was that he could not obey the law. That's what he's revealing. There aren't enough sacrifices in the universe to take care of my sin, is what he's saying. To love God and to love his creation can make up for all the difference in the world. But how can we so love God and love others? 
unless God does some kind of work in our heart to enable us to do that. For like this lawyer, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. And look what Messiah says. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are right on track. You keep thinking about that and you realize there's not enough of anything to make me right with God in my own doings. It will lead you to cry out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. What we are privileged to know is that when we so cry out, it's because someone has paid the penalty for our sin already that we can rely upon. Before his coming, we had to wait And we didn't have full understanding of what was going to transpire. But today, all bets are off. We do know what has occurred that can enable the grace of God to be unleashed in our hearts. If you turn back two chapters to chapter 10, look at this contrast with this man in chapter 12 and the rich young ruler found in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10... Uh, excuse me, Mark 10, we're told that as Yeshua started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Yeshua already gets to the heart of things. He says, why do you thinking of me like any of these other rabbis that you could speak to? Why would you call me good? For there is no one who is good except God. He's not suggesting I am not worthy of being called good. He's raising the question of why is he calling me good when you don't think of me as good in the proper sense of goodness. For there's only one who is good who is God. And therefore, unless you think of me as God, you have no business calling me good. So why did he call him good? Well, he wants to gain his attention. And he wants to gain a sense, a response that might be favorable to him. Because listen to what he says. He says, no one is good. But let me tell you how you can gain eternal life. You know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. I think it's interesting that Messiah here points to these commandments. Because this man is rich. And so he's drawing attention to the mechanism by which many individuals, not all, but many individuals acquire their wealth. Some do it by murder, taking advantage of others and creating slander so that someone else may not get the bid or the job, but I might get it. And so he's speaking about murder. Have you acquired your wealth, young man, by means of destroying the reputation of others? He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery. Have you exhibited a power by which you forced people to do what you would want them to do? Were you exhibiting a sense of an inappropriate use of power and authority, which is at the heart of adultery? He says, do you not steal? Did you acquire your wealth by taking what doesn't belong to you? Have you given false testimony about what you are actually capable of providing? Have you been honest in your work? He says, have you defrauded? And have you been concerned that your wealth is used to take care of your family? Or have you failed to use your wealth for your own parents' benefit? This young man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, if I was Messiah, I would say, no, you didn't. Come on. 
But our Messiah is extremely gracious. Look what he says. He says, there's one thing you lack. Wow. Can you imagine that? I mean, if Messiah was to talk to me, he'd say, there's so many things you lack. Just trust me. But he says to him, there's one thing you lack. And he says, sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, Messiah doesn't say that to every wealthy person. Wealth is not a sign of evil. Not everybody that has wealth is bad. And not everybody that is poor is good. But what we find here, for this young man, he had a God in place of the God. His wealth was such that he could not part with it. Which meant he loved wealth with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's how you can know if you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you willing to part with everything you have to go and follow the Messiah? That's what Yeshua invited this young man to do. And he couldn't do it. Why? Because his wealth was what he loved. Well, you can put in there whatever it is. If it is loved more than Messiah, you will not give it up, no matter what God asks you to do. Now, it says in this passage that when Messiah looked upon him, he loved him. It doesn't say that about a lot of others that he encounters. But this young man, it says, he loved. And it must be because he identified himself with him. And reading through a uh, commentary on this passage by Tim Keller, he has a very interesting insight or thought, whether right or wrong, I don't know. But he suggests the reason why Messiah loved this man was because he was very much like him. Well, they both were young. Yeshua was 33 when he died. I'm almost twice that age. Think about that. He was 33. And those of us who are that much older and more, think about how much more you have lived than even the Messiah himself. So he was a young man when he died and went to the cross. This man is young as well. And Yeshua was pretty rich too. For he dwelt in all of heaven. And he was at the right hand of the Father. And he had all of the universe at his disposal. He is richer by far as the King, Messiah of Israel and of the universe. But Messiah did what he's asked this rich young man to do. To leave his wealth to follow him. And Messiah left his wealth to follow the Father's will and to give his life for us a ransom for many. That man loved his riches the way Messiah loved his Father. And thus nothing would come between him and his Father. That's loving the Lord with all of your heart, 
all of your soul, all of your might, and all of your strength. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful affirmation that Moses has given to us. I pray that as we reflect on its truths and as we recite it week to week, it is, we are prone for it to just simply be a routine without any real reflection on its meaning and significance. Help us, Father, not to allow that to happen. And help us, Lord, to acknowledge you alone are God. You are one. And you are extremely and mystically and mysteriously complex. And yet you loved us so much that you gave your son that we might have life. May we love you so much that we would give you everything in honor and praise to your glory. For it's in Messiah's name we pray.